Turn with me this morning again back to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We've come to the sixth commandment in our series on the Ten Commandments. And I'm going to read just the sixth commandment here this morning, just verse 13. So hear God's holy law You shall not murder. The Sixth Commandment, maybe along with the Eighth, is probably the most universally accepted commandment in in the world. Uh, Secular Americans or Catholic Brazilians or Islamic Algerians or atheist Europeans, whoever, past and present, uh, virtually all agree that one human killing another human is usually wrong. That's reflected in law codes uh, all over the world, again, past and present. Uh, it's, it's a part of God's law, a part of the Ten Commandments that virtually everyone can agree with, at least, at least on the surface, at least simply what's stated here in, in Exodus chapter 20. And yet, uh, last year, 26,000 times, uh, one American had so much hatred for another American that he or she slaughtered that person. 26,000 homicides in the U.S. last year. Uh, One medical association estimates that the average child, by the time they get to the end of elementary school, will have seen 8,000 murders on on TV, TV, movies, and so on. Depending on the year, we violently end the life of an average of a million babies each year in the U.S. Uh, We increasingly discuss how we can rid ourselves more quickly and efficiently of the sick and dying and and elderly. There are many topics on which I would not choose to quote a pope, but famously and rightly did John Paul II uh, say that we live in a culture of death uh, in the West today. And yet, still do most people point to the Sixth Commandment, especially uh, for some self-righteousness, for a commandment that most of us have supposedly kept. Uh, some of you are familiar with evangelism explosion, that, that model, that method of evangelism. The, the most, one of the most common answers to the diagnostic question, why would God let you into heaven, is, well, I've never killed anyone. Right? In other words, there's one of the Ten Commandments that, that I've kept perfectly. Isn't that great? As with the other commandments, we're to see that it forbids much more than what is in the brief statement in Exodus 20. The whole scriptures fill out our understanding of that. It, it calls us to much more good than is seen just on the surface. And that's true uh, with the sixth commandment as, as much as any of them. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 5, we'll, we'll consider this a little bit later, um, speaking about the sixth commandment, says whoever is angry with his brother, with, with another person, whoever, is, uh, whoever insults his brother, will be liable to judgment, is, is guilty of the Sixth Commandment. And so far from being a command that most of us have kept, it becomes one that none of us have kept, but, but that we have broken many times. Um, one that calls for deeper and more careful thought in, in terms of how we, how we live it out positively uh, as well. Our God is the God of life, the giver and sanctifier and redeemer of life, um, when, when God's law was first violated in the Garden of Eden, uh, the, the next sins we read about really are uh, uh, false worship and then a murder, a brother on brother, 
And that murderous spirit, Jesus makes clear, is in every one of us, whether we've carried it out to its logical extreme or not. So we don't just live in a culture of death, among a culture of death, and, and we do in a particular and historic sense, but we are, all people, um, a people of death uh, because of the sin uh, that's in us. So let's consider together the sixth commandment this morning, how it calls us away from death, away from everything that tends toward death and the harm of, of the life that God gives, and how it calls us to be like the God of life, uh, the giver of life. I want to begin uh, number one on your outline there by defining terms. The, sec- the, the sixth commandment here is actually in the Hebrew is just two words. It's uh, negation, the word not basically, and then this second word. If, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments in the King James, maybe some of you learned the Ten Commandments in the King James, uh, this commandment reads, thou shalt not what? Kill. Right? Thou shalt not kill. Here in the New American Standard and many other versions today, it reads, you shall not murder. Uh, those are different words. I think it makes a big difference which English word we choose there in, in really understanding what's intended in this command. Kill is a much broader word uh, in English as well. It's less precise, and I think it's less helpful in understanding the biblical meaning here. In Hebrew, there are about eight different words used for killing for taking life. Uh, This word, the word used here, is never used of killing and warfare. It's never used of capital punishment. Uh, It's never used of killing animals uh, and among other things. Uh, Really, the word means the unlawful, the unjust taking of human life. Uh, Murder is a good English word. That's, That's basically what we mean by the word murder. That raises the question, though, that I want to consider first, what, what, what might be just taking of human life then? What might be lawful killing? Um, in other words, what kind of killing is perhaps not included in the Sixth Commandment, in the biblical concept of murder? Well, there, there are a few categories of things. Um, and, I want, and I'll mention these in just a second, but I would note up front that the reason for each of these, the reason for these exceptions, if you will, um, is not that God is flippant about life. It's not that God is barbaric or, or anything like that. Rather, it's that God is intensely and unflinchingly passionate about the value of life and protecting life. Uh, that's why there are exceptions. Uh, there are occasions uh, when it is good and right to take life. Uh, so one of those uh, potentially is the death penalty. Uh, the, the Western world is going away from the death penalty. It used to be basically universal in the world, uh, but it's, it's more and more understood by modern secularists to be barbaric. It's uh, argued it's, you know, it's not a deterrent, it's not economical, and, and so on. There, there are more than 100 nations now in the world that, that have abolished the death penalty for any crime whatsoever. Um, but in the Old Testament... Uh, the death penalty is, in fact, required by God for certain things, for, for Israel, for the nation of Israel and their civil laws, at least. Now, we can debate the, the when and how of capital punishment, how that applies today, but we can know it's not included in the prohibition of this commandment, in large part because 
the civil penalty in the Old Testament for breaking the sixth commandment was death. Um, and it's also not just, it's not just part of the law that Moses gave. It's not just a mosaic principle just for the nation of Israel. It goes, uh, it's much more foundational than that. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. After the flood, God said to Noah, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God said to Noah, in order to protect the image of God in every human life, if if a life is taken unjustly, uh, that person's life is to be taken. Uh, that, That possibility is affirmed in the New Testament. Paul in Romans 13 speaks about the the civil government bearing the sword uh, by God's appointment. And and lest we should have any debate, as as pacifists try to do and wiggle around, what does the sword mean? A sword's not for spanking, right? It's it's for punishment. Uh, Western societies, when they wrestle with capital punishment, are, are not wrestling with the merits of it on the basis of protecting the image of God, in man, or, or on the basis of you know justice for the God-given value of life, they're wrestling with more practical concerns like is it economical, is it a social deterrent, and so on. Um, not unimportant questions necessarily, but but because of that, they don't always come up with with consistent thought or laws about human life. Um, you have today people who will argue against the death penalty for humans in any circumstance. And people with basically the same worldview or sometimes the same people argue for the death penalty for taking the life of an animal. Or or, or think about the fact that in any Western society, uh, you can lose your life justly, lawfully, just for threatening the life of another person uh, in any Western society. So if if you go into a, a bank with a gun to rob the bank, and the police show up, and you point your gun at the police, they will shoot you. They'll take your life in any Western country, lawfully. And no one will think anything of it. But you could go into a daycare, you could blow up a daycare, kill 50 women and children, and if you get into the court system, your life cannot be taken. There are these wild inconsistencies in, in protecting human life when we're not thinking about the image of God. So there, there remain plenty of difficult questions uh, about when and how and um, uh, avoiding injustice, especially with regard to uh, capital punishment. But, but it's not clearly not envisioned, envisioned as part of the concept of the Sixth Commandment uh, in the Bible. And again, that's not because of a devaluing of life, but a way of valuing and, and protecting Life. Another category, briefly, would be uh, self-defense, another means of protecting life. Uh, so I'm thinking even of the possibility of lethal self-defense. Again, this is explicitly addressed uh, in, in Israel's civil laws. In Exodus 22, I won't read this now, but if you want to read it later, that's where it is. God describes a scenario where a man breaks into your house in the middle of the night in the dark and says if, if he dies, if you kill him, uh, there's no guilt for you. You're protecting your family. And God goes on, interestingly, to draw some finer lines, though. He says if it's daytime, Im- implying that if you, could, if you could see perhaps that your life wasn't in danger and you kill this guy, then there may be some guilt uh, on you. 
um, self-defense, even lethal self-defense, is lawful, uh, even by our nation's laws, uh, by our state laws. And again, that's not because of flippancy towards life. It's, it's because of a high value on protecting innocent life. And then the other category uh, here is warfare. Uh, that, that's not in view in the Sixth Commandment, in, in the concept of murder here. Again, warfare, was, uh, for the nation of Israel, it was, it was commanded by God at times uh, against their enemies. Uh, it's assumed, I think, again, in what Paul says in Romans 13, about the, the government, the rightly appointed government, bearing the sword for the protection of their people. Uh, this is not to say, by any means, that, that all war is necessarily just. Certainly there's been much, much war in the history of the world that has been horribly unjust. Uh, but in, in the West, particularly, we've had a long and careful tradition of just war or just war theory that's, that's based on biblical principles of, of what might be uh, a right and just war. It, it, it's basically self-defense writ large, right, for, for a nation, defending and protecting life. And there, there are traditional characteristics that are included that must be met for a, a uh, in just war theory, so uh, it's, it's not a, a, a personal act of vengeance or, or personal gain. It's, it's waged by a legitimate government. It's for a righteous cause. Uh, and at last resort, uh, it's waged with reasonable force, with reasonable hope of success, and, and, and so on. These are articulated in, in some different ways. But it's a careful way of thinking about war as, as self-defense. Uh, well, so, so much for what is not included in this command. What, what does the sixth commandment prohibit? Looking at number two on your outline, I, I think we could summarize, in a sense, what's prohibited as being anti-life. Being anti-life. Uh, not simply ending life, uh, but by being anti-life. Let, let, what is prohibited? Let, let's start from the most outward and obvious things. Again, homicide. Uh, is, is the most obvious thing, taking the life of another human out, outside of the, the possibly just reasons that we just noted. Um, again, the Bible and our civil laws in the United States, our, our civil laws in the state of Colorado, uh, make distinctions in, in levels of guilt within homicide. We have, uh, at the one extreme, um, premeditated murder, what we call first-degree murder in our law code, uh, all the way down to Manslaughter, even un involuntary manslaughter. Um, what is that? It, it means, well, you, you weren't out to harm someone. You never had any intention to harm, certainly to take life, but you were acting negligently, recklessly in some way that was endangering life, and, and someone, someone died. Um, again, these, these distinctions are reflected in, in God's law. The, the best example of this in the Old Testament Law is uh, an ox. God says in Exodus, you know, if, if, if your ox gets out and it gores somebody and they die, that's a, that's a very tragic, sad accident, but it was an accident. Then God says, if, if this was an ox that you knew to be very dangerous uh, and, and uh, difficult ox and you were negligent and you let the thing get out and someone died, then, then there's guilt on you for it. So, homicide. An, an individual never has the right, aside from self-defense, 
to destroy the image of God in another person, uh, no matter how evil that person is. Uh, We must mention uh, this certainly prohibits abortion, the greatest injustice in the history of the world. Um, A child at any stage of development is the image of God, uh, given life by God, who is alone sovereign over life and death. Uh, See Psalm 139, for God's design of us, even in the womb, abortion is murder. Uh, Euthanasia, uh, an unfortunately named euphemism for something. Euthanasia, good death, right? Um, Increasingly accepted and practiced in the world, uh, euthanasia is murder. Now, let's, let's recall, though, how the commands, the, the, the Ten Commandments, each give a, a culminating sin uh, in, in, the category, in a category of sins or a progression of sins, right? This is clear in all the scriptures. It's explicit in Jesus' teaching, um, as we'll see in just a moment as well. But we're to understand that everything that leads up to that culminating sin uh, is, is also wrong. It's also against that commandment. So the, the larger catechism, for example, s- summarizes uh, saying that we ought to avoid things that, that tend toward the destruction or the harm of human life. Uh, not just taking life, but anything that tends toward the harm of the life that God's given. And, and these things are I mean, not, not quite as black and white as you know, taking someone's life. They're their heart stops beating, they're, they're dead now. This is an injustice. Uh, they take more wisdom and discussion and care, but, but it's no less important to think through what, what other sorts of things might be included in this command. Uh, again, all kinds of negligence. Uh, failure to be careful about protecting others around you. Uh, again, the Old Testament law reflects this. They were to put a, a, a fence around your flat roof where people would hang out so people wouldn't fall off. You're to keep your dangerous ox inside the pen. Um, Whatever things are parallel to that in our lives, whether it leads to uh, death or leads to harm or not, or or no harm at all, uh, we're to be careful with others' lives. So putting fences around our in-ground pools or um, impaired, distracted driving, uh, all, all kinds of things that we could make application to. What else tends toward the, the harm of the bodies, the life that God has given to us? Uh, certainly recreational use of many different kinds of drugs. Um, gluttony, uh, overindulging in, in food and, and things that, that in a way that's harmful to, to our bodies, our lives. Uh, I think that for Christians being careful about this discussion, how we honor God and the life that he gives, that extreme sports would be part of the discussion. I, I don't have tennis or baseball in mind. I'm thinking more of like Red Bull type stuff, you know, things that have a high degree of danger to, to human life. Maybe more controversially, but I think also part of the conversation would be something like boxing or UFC fighting, right, that have as their simple goal to maim another person. Right to, to harm their life. The, the ultimate goal in those sports would be to get a KO or a TKO. E- either one is, is brain damage, right? Brain damaging your opponent. Um, we could include carefully thinking about uh, the sixth commandment, uh, overworking. 
uh, overworking. I, I think it's legitimate to say, uh, in thinking about all these things, there are very real ways to, to eat, to play, to work yourself or others to death or, or to, to some kind of harm. And we ought to consider these as we are, consider how we're called to be like a holy God who is a giver and a protector of life. So those are some outward ways, but that's, that's the easy part. That's the easy part. If, if you'd turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. And remember, when in our introductory sermons to this series, we talked about some principles for understanding and applying the Ten Commandments. One was the inside-outside principle. And that is simply, as is clear in all of the Bible, that, that God commands not only our outward actions... But even more fundamentally, he, he commands our hearts. He knows and can see and, and commands our hearts. Uh, and is calling us to holiness in our hearts as well. Though so Jesus himself here doesn't let us think that we have kept the sixth commandment just because we haven't killed anyone or punched anyone or driven drunk or taken street drugs recently. Right, these outward things. In Matthew 5, verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. So there's the, the sixth commandment and the application of it outwardly. He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. This command, as much as any of the others, is a matter of the heart. It, it speaks to our attitudes towards others, Jesus says. Uh, murder, outward murder, invariably begins in the heart, even with the slightest bitterness. So, brothers and sisters, the, the holiness God created for you, you, you for, and, and calls you to, excludes even any hidden bitterness in your heart towards others. How often, how easily do we have bitter, angry thoughts towards others? We come up with all kinds of euphemisms. I use them sometimes, too, to, to justify this to ourselves. We say, oh, I'm frustrated with so-and-so. I'm annoyed. I'm bothered. I probably often covering up Something of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus says these attitudes toward fellow believers, to fellow, you know, fellow image bearers, whether they're believers or not, unless it's a pure, unselfish, holy anger at sin itself alone, which is possible, but I think very, very difficult for us, it makes you a murderer, deserving of hell, Jesus says. Uh, the Apostle John um, it, it seems this teaching made quite an impression on him. Uh, he, he repeats it in 1 John chapter 3. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. The Heidelberg Catechism uh, summarizes by saying, By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, desire for revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. So it becomes one of the hardest commands for us to keep. Consider a conclusion that, that Phil Riken draws here. This is arresting, and I might qualify it a, a little bit, but 
I think it's true and makes us think. He says, by this standard, it is as wrong to hate those who carry out abortions as it is for them to perform them in the first place. I might simply qualify that by saying that those sins wouldn't be equally heinous, but they're equally sin, equally breaking the sixth commandment. We, and in, in, that, in that vein, we, we should and must hate abortion. And yet, maybe it's alarming for us to realize we have no right as sinners deserving hell ourselves to hate other humans, no matter what they're doing. We could apply it to, to war. Even in war, killing ought not to be done. It ought to be done out of a motive of love and desire for peace and justice and not out of hatred. Christians, you're called away from any speaking harshly, harboring bitterness, uh, gossip, you know, harming someone else's reputation in, in that way. Jesus then goes on in Matthew 5 to specifically describe another way that we break the sixth commandment. If you look at verse 23, he says, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Uh, Failure to, to reconcile with fellow believers. If, if you know that there's some kind of a risk, if you, if you know, not necessarily in, in Jesus' description, that, that you have done something wrong, but that someone else has an issue, you're, you're to interrupt even worship to make sure that it's right. Go immediately to them and reconcile. A failure to do so makes you a murderer, anti-life. So says Jesus. What does the sixth commandment call us to uh, positively. Well, looking at number three on your outline, I want to summarize that by saying being pro-life. And, and I'm, of course, fully aware of the technical specific meaning that that term has in our culture, and it's a, a good one and a very important one. But I'm borrowing it, using it in a broader sense this morning uh, to call us to realize that we're called to be pro-life in, in every area of life. The Sixth Commandment, the Scriptures call us to be protectors, promoters of full, dignified image of God, life. We can't possibly discuss every possible way to do that, but, but begin again thinking at, at the level of your heart, your thoughts and attitudes. In any situation where there's tempt, uh, temptation to anger, to bitterness, to envy, and, and so on, I think a great summary of what we're called to replace that with is simply the fruit of the Spirit. Replace it with love, patience, kindness, gentleness towards others. The example of Jesus stands out in in everything we're called to in the Sixth Commandment. Um, He would not crush a bruised reed or or quench a smoking flax, as he read of himself. Those are images of people who are, what, bruised or bruised? down or sinful or broken or failing, whatever it may be. Jesus was and is gentle and patient, acts only in love uh, towards you, his people. Jesus commanded us to love our enemies. We're not permitted to hate, but we're called to reflect God's love. The most remarkable example we have of that in history is Jesus on the cross, uh, praying for his murderers. 
being pro-life means nothing less than uh, responding to Jesus' instruction here, seeking reconciliation wherever it's possible. It would mean giving aid to, to those who are elderly or sick or disabled or in dire need. And, and, and there's hard application of that, especially outside of the church in, in our society, in a welfare society like ours, when people's problems can often be so complex. Uh, often the, the outward, the presenting problem is not the real problem or the biggest problem. Um, be so many steps down from what is uh, the most needed problem. I mean, take for example, we, we were thinking a couple weeks ago about homelessness, someone who's homeless. The outward presenting need, in a sense, is money and, and a house or a home. But behind that, there may be and often is a, an addiction, a, a powerful problem in itself. And behind that, there may be a broken family. And, and behind that, there may be a broken, abusive upbringing and, and bad examples. And, and behind all of it, of course, is a sinful heart and bad decisions all along the way. It's, it's complex. But, but surely we're called to more than just throwing up our hands, assuming someone else is helping. We got some ideas a couple of weeks ago about how to be pro-life toward for example, the homeless uh, coming alongside of fellow believers who are uh, trying to uh, be that uh, in our community. Uh, being pro-life could be sending aid to those suffering from disasters. Or one of the greatest ways that Christians have been pro-life in all of history, really, is adoption. Uh, adopting children. Uh, it could mean striving for just laws in, in how we vote or speaking at city council or engaging with your neighbors or, or all sorts of ways. Of course, opposing abortion in meaningful and tangible ways. And in all of these things, uh, coming to the Lord in prayer, uh, praying for justice uh, and peace, life. One way that we can break the sixth commandment is by doing nothing. Uh, Jesus' most famous parable uh, illustrates that that powerfully. The characters in the Good Samaritan, or the yeah, the, the Good Samaritan who did evil, didn't do so by actively, positively doing something wrong. Right? They did so by doing nothing. Um, whether and we're not told what their thought was, what their reasoning was, why they walked by this guy who was dying and in dire need. Uh, whether they were concerned about ritual purity or whether they're thinking that that's not my responsibility someone else will help or he's probably beyond help at this point or I'm too busy or I probably wouldn't be able to help anyways again brothers and sisters it's not easy always to know how to help you can't help everyone you we can't be involved in every cause or in every need but we need to be considering wrestling with and eager to know how we can be pro-life uh, in this sense as followers of Jesus. Well, consider the fourth point on your outline then. And remember, uh, a couple of months ago, we talked about the three uses or the three functions of the law, the three functions of the Ten Commandments in our lives. How do they, and, and this has a lot to do with how they relate to grace, how they relate to God's grace. Uh, what, what was the first of those three uses? It was... Uh, the, the law as a mirror in our lives, right? A, a mirror to show us, especially as we understand these commands more and more deeply, to show us 
the depth of our sin and our depravity, our need for grace, and then to point us to the depth of Christ's grace and his forgiveness for us. And how true is that with the sixth commandment? We're all guilty, most clearly in Jesus' exposition. Mere anger makes us heart murderers, Jesus says. Uh, David Pallison, who I've commended to you before, has a book on anger called Good and Angry. And it's the second or third chapter, I think, has the title, Do You Have an Anger Problem? Do you have an anger problem? And the whole chapter is one word, yes, period. (laughs) It's written once. And then it goes to chapter discussion questions, (laughs) like all the other chapters. Um, Very clever, but troubling. The point is powerful. We, We have all failed this standard. We've offended the God of life. And disgrace the image of God in, in our fellow humans. And what does the Bible say about murderers? Uh, it's not good. Revelation 21. But as for murderers, their portion, and, and it lists other things, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Uh, Paul in Galatians 5. Uh, just before the fruit of the Spirit. Now the works of the flesh are evident. There are a number of things that touch on the Sixth Commandment here. Jealousy, fits of rage, rivalry, envy. I warned you as I warned you before. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's bad news. But it's a grace of God that we have the mirror of his law to show us our sin. And we're pointed to the good news. All murderers desperately need a savior. What does the Bible say about God's anger, God's wrath? Only his wrath is perfectly righteous. In Romans 1, Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. As one writer put it, His righteous, perfect anger directed towards people like us who have so often displayed such unrighteous, unholy anger. But for those whose faith is in Jesus, uh, every single instance, every single uh, time of of your harshness, your bitterness, your anger, your failure to reconcile, your putting others down, even harming others, everything, all of it is placed on Jesus. He was crushed for our iniquities, for our bitterness, for our harshness, for our unwillingness to forgive. Capital punishment is, in a sense, a picture of what we all deserve because of how good and perfect the life that God gives is, how sacred the image of God in us, in all people, is, which has been horribly distorted and trampled on by by all of our sins. But we're saved not by God relaxing the, the rules or the sentence of death, Right? Not, not by God deciding he doesn't actually feel that strongly uh, about honoring the image of God in us. That would be to relax his holiness and his goodness. But we're saved by his fully carrying out justice uh, against his son, his own son in our place. I want to close just by pointing out that I wore my favorite orange tie for St. Patrick's Day two days ago. Um, it's sad that St. Patrick's Day has become simply a day of uh, partying and drinking and so on. It's sad that his real story has been forgotten. There's, there's lots of legends built up around uh, St. Patrick, 
uh, including the idea that he's a saint. He's never been canonized by the Catholic Church. Uh, there's the story that he rid, uh, rid Ireland of snakes, that he used the shamrock to teach about the Trinity and, and all kinds of things that there's no evidence for. Uh, another one that gains traction is that St. Patrick led a genocide when he came to Ireland uh, of certain people uh, in Ireland. The reality, briefly, is that uh, Patrick was born in the 300s, not the 1300s, the 300s, uh, in present-day Scotland to a Christian family. He was then, I think when he was 16, kidnapped uh, by uh, Irish um, and taken away, far away relatively, from his home. And six years later, he was able to escape and made it all the way back to his home, uh, eventually became a priest. And then he risked his life for the rest of his life uh, to go back to pagan Ireland and preach the gospel. And eventually... Uh, through many dangers and, and many things, the, the pagan king of Ireland, uh, modern-day Ireland, was uh, converted, baptized, uh, and much of Ireland came to Christ. And so far from bringing death to Ireland, uh, Patrick risked his own death for the sake of life to bring real, true, and everlasting life, uh, life in the highest sense to the people of Ireland. And my point in closing is simply that this is the most important way uh, that we promote life and save death, save from death as well. This is the most important way that we keep the sixth commandment, is by sharing Jesus Christ, uh, the Redeemer, the the King of life, the Savior from death. Uh, So let's go and do likewise. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. Uh, for life. We ask that you'd help us to be those who honor and dignify the image of God in others uh, and in ourselves. We uh, look forward to the day when death will be swallowed up in victory and will be no more. Uh, We thank you this morning for your word. We ask you to help us to receive it with faith, to lay it up in our hearts, to practice in our lives. We pray all this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.